You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And this is not a spoiler-free episode. We are going to be talking about the series in its entirety, which as of this recording is up through the end of season two. So if you have not seen the first 20 episodes, there could be some spoilers ahead for you. And we really are coming up on the premiere of season three, which is hard to believe at this point. There are actually previews for season two out, or season season two. There are previews for season three out at this point. Has there? I, I've seen a couple little teaser type trailers, but they've put out some some clips of scenes too, haven't they? There was just one scene, okay. yeah, because there was a whole there's a whole thing. In case you don't know, they released four little teaser trailer things. They've got Sarah, Allison, Helena, and Kasima, and they each end with a binary thing. And I don't know if you were familiar with the season two promos. They had binary things at the end of like those code, two. You mean? Yeah, things okay. written in binary. And so the clever people who are orphan black fans <laughs> screen capped the things, transcribed it into a binary decoder, and would decode these things. And what they were this time is they were like, if A equals B and B equals C, then A, A equals, equals C. C. Yeah. True or false. But they're not all. Correct. So so basically, it's it's a true or false. And then at the end was a link that the Orphan Black social media stuff sent out, which was, I think, cloneclub.tumblr.com. And it asks you for a password. So the answers to these questions, true or false, you type in the T or the F in that sequence. And then if you get it correct... <laughs> it will unlock a video clip. That's crazy. It That's is crazy. brilliant and crazy. Exactly. It's it's perfect. <laughs> it's Orphan Black. <laughs> it is very, it's appropriate for this audience, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, this is, that's, these these marketing people are so smart. They're just so smart, you guys. Ugh. They're on top of things. Yeah. I yeah. love it. It's great. Anyway, but yeah, it released a scene from, I assume, the first episode. I, I think I saw them post something about it on Facebook. It would look like it was maybe Allison at a, coaching soccer. That was part of it. That was part of it. Okay. So, so yeah. She, well, she was on the phone, so I guess there could be another side to the conversation. Of course. Was it Helena? No. Okay. Because that, I would love to see that. <laughs> like, Helena calling up Allison. <laughs> That would be fantastic. Yes, I would. would love that. But that is not what we saw. <laughs> that's that's okay. That's okay. So that's cool. We're getting getting ever closer to April 18th, which is my father's birthday, which has now been superseded by, <laughs> no, 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 it's Open Black <laughs> premiere day. <laughs> Happy birthday, Dad. I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. We're, prob we're probably going to do something with my dad for, like, have dinner or something, and then I'm coming over here, and we're going to watch. I, I wondered... Because I mean, like your dad, I think is on the way over oh, uh, to here, so yeah. you'll be you'll be part way here anyway. I'm close. So. Yes, my my parents' house is closer to you than my house is, so it's just it's, it's convenient. It's convenient. It's practical, is what it is. Thank you, Orphan Black, for that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that scheduling. Mm -hmm. Orphan Black is very, works really well around my schedule, <laughs> so thank you, Orphan Black. If well, you've got to be inconvenienced, at least they're convenient about inconveniencing you. <laughs> But let's get to what we're actually talking about this week instead of just bullshitting. Um, <laughs> we can do both. <laughs> so this week, <laughs> we are talking about orphan black and feminism. So if that's a word that scares you... 
you shouldn't be watching Orphan Black. Or well, in or and or listening to this podcast because we're kind of feminists here. So we are going to talk about the feminist themes in Orphan Black because this has been getting the show a lot of attention. Is how the show presents women and and the feminist strong feminist themes that run throughout the show. I was going to make a joke about uh, you know you said talk about the feminist themes of Orphan Black. And uh, so I'm going to say the show. Yes. And we're done. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing. We sat down. We're like, how are we going to talk about this? And I said, well, we should start with the clone experiment. And it's like, okay, we're starting with the entire thing. (laughs) (laughs) The entire premise of the show. (laughs) But it didn't have to be, right? Like, the way that they crafted the clone experiment on the show very specifically really draws out some feminist themes. Right. Because it doesn't have to be women who are the clones. Right. And we don't have to be viewing this story from their perspective. Right. In fact, it seems like normally we wouldn't view this story from that perspective. This could very easily be from the perspective of the dyad scientists, not all of which are male, but, you know, in the first season, very much represented by Leaky. So it could have easily been a very different story depending on either casting a male actor as the Lita clone or telling the story from a different perspective. But that that would be a very different show, it, it, it seems like to me. It would. Because, again, the feminist themes are so, so prevalent yeah. in the series. Because there is this whole narrative about, you know, it's it's their bodies yes. <laughs> are in the balance of this whole war of Proletheans versus Neolutionists versus, you know, the clones themselves. Right. So I think the first element of the story that really struck me as as like, ooh, they're getting kind of feministy here, is when we're introduced to the concept of the monitors in, in season one. I'm trying to remember what episode that is. I think it's episode five. It's right before... I think that's right. And and Sarah, you know, Paul's been away for a while from, from their apartment, the, the apartment that he shared with Beth, and he comes back. And then Sarah feels like she had a really weird dream with people experimenting on her. And then she wakes up and finds that like node in her mouth. First of all, diet scientist, that was kind of, that was kind of not a good, not, that was, it was sloppy. Was it was sloppy, sloppy with you, that was sloppy. diet scientist. <laughs> Cause it's not a small thing that she finds either. No, it's pretty big. The little, and then uh, I kind of think, electrode or how did whatever. she not immediately notice that was in her mouth? When I she know. Woke up? But that, that's beside the point. <laughs> Beside the point we're making here. So we have this idea of of the monitoring, because obviously they came into her house while she was sleeping, did not ask her or probably Beth's permission from what what Sarah can tell later on in the episode. And it's suggested that this has likely happened to all of the clones at some point. And regularly. And regularly. Which invasive. Right. Right. Which is the entire point we're making, mm-hmm. that the fact that it is invasive and is presented as being invasive, it's feminist, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and this concept of, like, the, the monitoring, I, I, it resonated for me. I, I do have a, a background in women's studies, and it kind of reminded me of this idea of the panopticon, which does not apply specifically to women, but it is often used in, in, in feminist studies. And the idea of the panopticon, I want to say it comes from Sartre? I'm trying to remember. That's probably wrong. But it's it's uh, the idea of the Panopticon is that the it's like the ideal design for a prison environment, which is basically where you have a big tower 
in the middle of a, of a kind of a, a circular box of prison cells, and you have one guard up in the tower. And the reason that this is ideal is that, that the prisoners can't tell where the guard is looking, and they could theoretically be looking at them any at any time. And so because of that, they are more likely to behave because there's this threat of they could be perceived. So it's the most efficient way. You don't need a ton of guards walking around all the time monitoring people. You just have this one and this threat of I could be caught at any moment. And so this is often used as a metaphor talking about particularly women, but, but I want to make very clear, like this happens to men in this culture too, of course. But this idea that, that women are always being sort of like scrutinized and then ultimately we sort of like internalize this scrutiny that we're supposed to, uh, you know, that we feel is being placed on us and we can start scrutinizing each other. So this idea of like monitoring, always being watched, it, it really resonated with some, with a lot of feminist theory that I've read. So that was, that was the point for me that I thought, oh, they're really getting feministy here, potentially. And you said Panopticon, and I immediately thought of Person of Interest because they recently had an episode entitled Panopticon, because the whole premise of Person of Interest is that there are, mm -hmm. there's perpetual surveillance. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's perpetual surveillance in our culture, period. Right. But, but so again, I'm not saying that this is a, a phenomenon that's exclusive to women, but because I learned about it through feminist study and it's often referenced in feminist study, that's why my mind kind of went there when we heard about the concept of the monitors. Right, right. No, I mean, it's totally valid because I think there is a lot of that where there's this sense of constantly being scrutinized for yeah. everything you do. Yeah. And, and, uh, there's also a, a club in Dallas called Panopticon. So there you go. I did not know that. Yeah. I don't pay any attention to clubs. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the first season ends with this big, one of the big reveals being that in hard, you know, hard coded into their DNA is this patent that says that the clones are owned by the experiment. So not only are they sort of, you know, little pawns being moved around and watched, but they are, they are in fact owned supposedly by Dyad. I know. How creepy is it that there's, like, a claim on them? That's... It's deeply disturbing. Yes. Yes. And and I think this is where the show really can take on this, this sort of metaphor for particularly kind of the sexual politics of women's bodies that's going on right now in regards to, to reproductive freedom and reproductive justice and things like this. This idea that women should be in control of their bodies and be able to decide what to do with their bodies. And and I think we hear this echo through Cosima's storyline really prevalently in season two. What I appreciate, especially about Cosima's perspective, her storyline that we've seen so far, is that Cosima occupies this weird space where she is with the scientists and is constantly having to sort of navigate this weird in-between space of she is the science, so she is both object and subject. <laughs> and Stephanie's laughing at me because I'm gesturing as I'm talking. <laughs> I assume is why you're laughing. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then I think she had a couple of, of quotes this, or moments, I should say, in this season. It, it's apparent, strangely enough, when she's, both times she's talking to Delphine, but it, in the first episode of season one, where, where Delphine has drawn the blood and and Kasima is telling her, like, no, the blood doesn't go to Dyad. I run my own tests. I'm doing this my way. And and she says something to the effect of, you know, it's my body. It's my decision. And, of course, then Delphine doesn't listen to her. Delphine. Ah, Delphine. 
I love you, but uh. but no, <laughs> no, Delphine. Well, because I, I think thinking about it now, Delphine also occupies sort of a weird yes. space where she is both she's dyad, right? She's both protector of and sort of scrutinizer of mm-hmm. you know because she's monitor, but. <laughs> Chris is again making great hand gestures. These little flip-floppy hand gestures. Because it's both. And this, that's what this hand gesture means, apparently. Yes, yeah, there's tension there. There's tension there. And then... Hence the franticness of the hand gestures. And then and then in, in episode... Oh, I'm not going to know the number. But later in the season, when the, when Cosima and Delphine, they have their big fight after Cosima realizes that Delphine knew that the, the treatment that they gave her were stem cells from Kira... She she screams at her, you know, something to the effect of, you know, it's, 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 I'm the science, you know, you know and, and, no, that's what she says, I'm pretty sure. I believe she does. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the science, or I am the science, or, yeah. Yeah. But louder mm-hmm. and angrier. Yeah. And, and, uh, just fighting for autonomy over her body and what she chooses to, to do with her body and to put into her body. And, yeah, it, it I think that very, very purposefully... I think they very purposefully chose those words to come out of Kasima's mouth to sort of echo this debate around the politics of women's bodies. Yeah. I mean, how timely is this story, right? And now I'm thinking about the politics and I'm getting upset. <laughs> and then I laugh because because nervousness. Yes. <laughs> well, and I guess, like, you know, we did mention this. This is kind of jumping back a bit to the whole monitoring thing. But it also has this implication about women's bodies always being accessible, which the idea that, you know, they, they just came in during the night and, and took all of these tests from, from who they thought was Beth. And, oh, Not cool. Creepy, creepy. And, and, <laughs> and we mentioned, it's, we see it really especially in the first episode of season two with how, you, like, when Sarah gets on the bus and that kid, and she's like, can I use your phone? And that kid says, can I touch your boob? And she smacks him. You and know? then I applaud Sarah. <laughs> and I think in the same episode, we see Allison basically getting groped by her acting coach or whatever he is, a director, her director. So, yeah, this, this idea of, like, women's bodies being accessible to men, I think, is also, throughout the series, it's woven in as well. Because no. No. And that actually leads us into talking about Helena. Ugh. Helena. Because <laughs> she went through a similar storyline this last season, as we talked about in our last episode. You know, this thing that she went through with, with Johansson and them just, you know, choosing to inseminate her. Just, you know. <sighs> drugging her. and Not then... inseminate, but, you know. In, in... Well, they did. Is that the right word for inseminate? Because she didn't, wasn't just putting semen in there. Yeah. So. Yeah, they did, they did like, implant the... Eggs, I think, yeah. is maybe the more correct term. term maybe. Yeah. But yeah, the whole thing started, though. They drugged her, mm-hmm. married her off. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm air-quoting married. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henrik. <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, then they they took her eggs, again, drugging her against her will to do mm-hmm. this, and then, like, fertilizing the eggs and then re-implanting them. And, and no. <laughs> This episode just me. No, <laughs> no, you annoying dudes in positions of power, and I'm air quoting power again, and I'm gonna cut all this because that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> but with Henrik, again, we have this expectation of 
women's bodies being accessible, he's not interested in them in necessarily a sexual way, the way that we've seen in other instances, but he clearly feels entitled to, you know, basically reproductive access to Helena, which is creepy. He does. He he views himself in a position of power over all the women in possibly the world, I'm going to assume, but uh, we but, see him in, in But the definitely context, so. in his community. Right. The farming Prolethean community. Mm-hmm. And see, the great thing about Helena, Helena oddly, maybe not oddly, but Helena mer- emerges as kind of this woman warrior fighting on behalf of women in season two. Which is probably why I love her so much. <laughs> if I was a superhero, I would be Helena. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about you, Chris, but I think it's mostly good. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't you think there's, like, a certain amount of, like, you know, wish fulfillment in Helena? Yeah. I mean, even though horrible, horrible things happen to Helena, Helena always manages to come out ahead, essentially. Mm -hmm. Because there's that moment in the bar in episode 206 where... You know, she's just trying to sit there, have a drink, and and big burly guy saddles on over to her and gets upset when she won't dance with him. Again, this idea of women needing to be accessible to particularly men in this in this case. And, you know, she breaks his finger. She just sprained it. Don't be a baby. I set you up for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, he turns on her and is really, really angry. And it takes another dude stepping in to say... She made herself clear, guy. Back off. And then, you know, she... And of course, Jesse being, I mean, being in the position of the good guy, then, like, he doesn't pressure Helena for anything. He he backs off and was a decent human being, so... (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, but the the finger sprain is not where it ends, right? Because she... It it ultimately concludes with him, with her wailing on the guy trying to gouge out his eyes <laughs> as is helena's way as is helena's way flying squirrel leap on there <laughs> up onto the pool table yes and then we also have of course which we talked about last week that strangely funny but also disturbing scene where where she uh where she you know does to henrik what henrik did to her sort of yeah <laughs> Essentially, essentially, in rudimentary terms. Did you want to read the there's there's a really great Vanity Fair article about essentially what we're discussing today, and there was a really great quote about Helena from it. We did. We we linked to it uh on on our website back when it came out. That link doesn't work anymore. Strangely. But uh we will post the link that does work right now in the show notes for this episode. Helena is the show's true gift to women, particularly in this season when she took on masculine oppression wherever she went, be it in bar fights or a male-run cult community. The second-to-last episode ended with Helena literally skewering the patriarchy before torching it to the ground. So we had her within the confines of this very patriarchal community, as we dis- again, as we discussed in our last episode, and what does she do? She burns it to the ground. Nice. <laughs> I am not a psychopath. <laughs> but no, I think you're totally right. I think through Helena, we do have a bit of of wish fulfillment, seeing some of these things addressed, these things that actually happen in society being addressed on, on the show in some weird way. Well, because there is, I mean, 
I don't know about you. I don't want to speak for anybody but myself. But whenever I see this sort of thing, somebody taking advantage of somebody like this and and being so awful about it, I just I just want vengeance. <laughs> but it's not something I would ever do right. in real life, right? Like, because I'm not a crazy person, right? But Helena being on the show, sort of representative of that, you know, of of the id, I right? Guess. Right? Yeah. I mean. Uh, Clearly, the way that you address these problems is not the way that Helena addresses these problems. And and by you, I mean one. Per- people do not address these problems in this way. But at the you same don't time... You do that, Chris, <laughs> is what Stephanie's saying. Stop it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but with through Helena, you know, she's dealing with these things in the very matter-of-fact, instant gratification type of way, which is kind of satisfying to see, because we know that that's not actually how it's going to work to... to address these issues in a real world context but on tv it's so it's it's so satisfying satisfying. (laughs) it's so satisfying Uh, another great thing about helena Uh that is not quite so violent or crazy okay Okay. (laughs) she has that conversation with grace because grace has also been been implanted with helena's eggs that were fertilized by henrik with you and helena says to her you know you don't have to have my babies if you don't want to. Yeah. Which, bless you, Helena. Yes. They have essentially, like, a pro-choice conversation right there. Helena says, you don't have to have them if you don't want to. But Gracie says, no, I could never do that. And Helena leaves it at that. Like, that was just a little microcosm of a pro-choice relationship, a pro-choice conversation, excuse me, on the show. And that made me really happy that they included that. And it was. I mean, it was, like, it was that simple. Mm-hmm. The, the exchange. Yeah. Good job, show. <laughs> so, of course, you know, in the context of, of our clones, I think what's really great about them is we get to see so many variations on what women can be. And these are all extremely – I hesitate to use the word strong because I think when people hear the word strong, they they take it very literally, like able to beat beat people up. When I say I like strong female characters, that I mean I want female characters who can beat people up. But that's not what I mean. From how about from from middle school English class? We'll break out the they're well rounded characters. <laughs> Is that better? Maybe as opposed to being flat characters, the yes, well rounded. They're well rounded, but they're also. I don't mean strength as in just literal physical. I can I can perpetrate violence, pick up heavy things. Not that type of strength, but this idea that they can carry their own storylines. You know, they they have. A, a a purpose on the show that is not determined by their relationship to to anybody, much less relationships to men, and and that sort of thing. And and I love that we get all of these variations on what a a well rounded, a strong female character can look like. And it is that type of character is so rare to even have one, <laughs> or maybe maybe they'll have one in a show, right? But like two. A- Two? No, no, no. Hang on. Hang on. It's getting crazy in here. <laughs> but to have them be the main cast of the show, I mean, I can't really think of another show on television <laughs> or, you know, network television. Can can you? No. <laughs> no. Like, maybe. Maybe one or two, but... Grey's Anatomy, um, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But th- that's just such a big cast. It's kind of like... <laughs> right. <laughs> Mo- most, But a lot of shows don't even have that big of a cast. Uh, but but yeah, it just... 
it's it's very unique to have this many of this this caliber of female characters because even a character like Helena, who is a bit of a villain on the show, she's still a, a really interesting interestingly written like strong female character. She just she just is. I may not I may have I may not want to hug her. I may want to you know. I do. <laughs> you will not. Okay, fine. <laughs> You can hug Rachel. She's not on my warm and what, hug. Rachel, no. What? Who did I say? Helena. Oh, I meant Rachel. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, you don't want to hug Helena? I kind of do. Sorry, go now back. That she knows what hugs are. <laughs> Sorry, go back. I meant to say Rachel. Rachel is a villain. And, and you know, I have issues with Rachel. But she's still a very, you know, well-rounded, interesting, strong character. And yes. she has, you know, and she has her own particular brand of 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 strength, you know, because because Kasim has her brain, and and uh, you know Helena has her physicality, and 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 Sarah's very cunning, and Rachel is ruthless. Yes, and Rachel is just ruthless. She's just ruth- ruthlessly ambitious, and it's rude. It, yes, and it's interesting to watch. It is, yeah. And and apart from the clones, though, if we if we consider all of the female cast members, we also have, we have Mrs. S. Who is so awesome, amazing, and awesome, and complicated, and, and an international and badass. an international badass. And we also have Delphine, who again, she's not uh, maybe a badass, but she's you know she's smart. She's, she's an intellectual badass. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> she's smart. She's getting sort of like complicated, interesting storylines. Just yeah, the, the and the whole like torn loyalties mm-hmm. aspect, and yeah, it's there's compelling stuff for her. Yeah. Exactly. Even though she doesn't, she doesn't have quite a, as a meaty part as the, like the clone characters do, but she still has a very interesting role to play on the show, I think. And definitely is not this like flat character that you don't really know much about. She's not just a stereotype. Right. I was going to say they, even though they introduced her primarily as the love interest, and that's still really, I think, her primary role, that's not all she is. She's yeah. allowed to be more, which yeah. thank you again, Orphan Black. <laughs> It's nice to see it, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And something that I really appreciate is that, you know, we, we have this cry for strong female characters in genre shows. And I feel like for a really long time, that primarily existed or as women who can beat up men. And I'm not saying that it's bad to have those type of characters. We need, we need those too. We need those too. But, I, I don't want that be to more. be, yeah, I don't that, want that to be the only way that people show that a woman character is a strong person. You can still have, have strength and be a badass because you're smart, because you're, you're, you're very cutting and sly. There's many ways that you can be like an awesome, interesting, cool, badass person. We're back to intellectual badassery. Yes, yes. Cause I think we do have, you, you know, you could argue we have that kind of with Helena on this show. She's she's the most quote unquote like male of the uh, you know kind of traditionally male characteristics because she primarily deals with her problems through aggression. Right. She's kind of like your action hero yeah. type, where she's surly and she punches people in the face and it's awesome. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she's not she's not our main character, and we have such a variety of. Of other types of of characters on female characters on the show that it's not just getting pigeonholed as to like this is the way that if women are going to be strong this is the way they should behave. So speaking of Helena being the most male, let's also talk about the men on the show because yes, feminism does include portrayals of men. Uh, <laughs> because- Thank you for the lesson, <laughs> Professor Stephanie. 
Well, I'm thinking back to this article that I saw. I think it was on Slate during the hiatus. I can't remember what it was on, but I remember the article that you're talking about. Yeah. Was it on Salon? Maybe it was Salon. It was either Salon or Slate. It was one of the S sites. But whichever site it was, it had weird coverage of Orphan Black. I read the, I think it was two articles that they put out about the show kind of right before it was about to come back from hiatus. And they were both, I got this impression, like, you watched the show, but I feel like you maybe watched it really fast and didn't really get a good picture of what all was going on here. But the one that I'm trying to bring up in a very long roundabout way <laughs> was this one who was talking about Orphan Black as a as a misandrist show. Misandry, of course, being men hating, essentially. And while she wasn't really talking, she meant it kind of as a compliment, I guess. I, I feel like it wasn't a particularly accurate representation of how the show treats its male characters. Yeah. I mean, I, I get what you're saying and I get what she was, cause I, it, it seemed like she was going for sort of a turnabout as fair play kind of aspect, I guess, on the show. But I, yeah, I don't think that's really what the show is because I don't feel like the show hates its male characters. No. I don't feel like that at all. No, cause really I, her, in case you had, in case you didn't read the article, the, her primary point was that the, the male characters on Orphan Black, essentially remained rather, with the exception of Felix, rather flat in one note in the first season. Basically, they were sort of background supporting characters. Yes. Which, I mean, it's basically, that is typically what happens in shows that are predominantly about men. That's what the women characters tend to be. Yeah. So I think what she was going for was like, here's a flip on the usual situation, but I don't think that all those shows that do that are inherently misogynist. No, exactly. Like, if it, yeah. So, I, I wouldn't yes, apply- I, I, I'm, I'm going back to your point about, <laughs> yeah. like, misandry is not really appropriate in this situation, right. I feel like. Right. And that I, I can't even think of a time when I would describe a show doing that to female characters as misogynist. That's really strong. That's, that's strong. I, you know. I'd say the fact, you know, if we take the fact that that's 90% of what exists on air <laughs> is that kind of show where that might be misogynist. But, like, the shows themselves are not, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I, I disagree with her use of the word misandry, but I think she does have a good – she points out something interesting and noteworthy about the show, the fact that in the first season we see – that the male characters are very much secondary characters in this world. Like, Felix is really the only one who gets a really interesting treatment throughout the first season. I think we've seen in the second season more development of, of some of the the other male characters in the universe, but uh, but for sure in the first season they were they were much more flat when compared to the the clone characters, the female characters. Right. I'd say you know, Paul got a decent amount of screen time, but we didn't really learn all that much about him. Art got a fair amount of screen time. But he was just kind of the cop. He's the partner cop. Right. And and Donnie was there some, and he was likable enough, but or was he, you know, <laughs> they did that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's all they're they're very background characters. They're they're not as important as the rest of the characters. As as our clones and Felix. Right, right, for sure. And Felix, who again is 
he's a man, but they kind of, you know, they call him the sister, yes. <laughs> basically. Like, he and Sarah, I think, at various points have basically referred to Felix as Sarah's sister. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're playing with that whole aspect of it, too. Right. Because you also had in that really great Vanity Fair article that we mentioned earlier, she talks about the fact that we have on Orphan Black, we have these, these male characters that you, you might call feminized, cause we have, we have Felix, who's, who's gay, and a very, like, flamboyant personality. And we have, we have Cal, who's brought on the second season, who's very, uh, very nurturing. He's far more nurturing toward, toward, or more easily nurturing toward Kira than, than Sarah is. Yeah, he, he seems more, comfortable, more natural with it yes. than Sarah does. Yeah. Sarah clearly loves her daughter, wants to be a good mother, but it doesn't come to her easily. It's hard for her, as we see. It seems like it's mostly, or, or as much as anything, like a protective instinct with Sarah, as, you know, as opposed to like an easy, comfortable maternal thing, right. necessarily. Right. And then we have, we have Donnie, who... I don't know that he's this, he's necessarily emasculated throughout the entire first season because he's a bit of a jerk. Not a bit of a jerk. He's a jerk in the beginning. But after the whole craft room incident, he does become more of, a, I think, an emasculated male character. And, you know, when she's swatting his hand away when he's like, do you want to have sexy times? No. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> But, uh, but in the, in, so, you know, these, these characters who you could describe as like more feminized men become or are, in Felix's case, he just always is really strong, uh, characters in their own right. Even Donnie, I hadn't really thought about it, but even, even Donnie in season two, where he sort of, you know, Donnie kind of gets his day. He finally does something right. It doesn't screw it up. And he has kind of this moment of like, yes, I did well, uh, but he's still very clearly the beta in that relationship in the Donnie Allison dynamic. Like Allison is still very clearly in charge here. So it's not like he, he does something right. And then suddenly he's this like virile man. He's still kind of this emasculated dude, but he's not a weakling because of it. Yes. Yeah. I think that's fair to, to use a common phrase. Allison wears the pants in that relationship. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I, I do think it's really interesting what they are doing with the male characters on this show. I think, you know, Paul's more of a traditional type of male character. So is Art. But don't you think it's interesting that here Paul is the more typical, you know, leading man kind of thing? He was gone for half of season two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we also in the second season get that very interesting slash troubling scene where we see Rachel dominating him. So even that really traditional male character has kind of been has been subordinated very clearly on the show. Mm -hmm. So it's all very interesting, the gender dynamics on on Orphan Black. Yep. They largely kind of flipped things from your standard show. I enjoy it. <laughs> so do I. I like this show. <laughs> Let's start a podcast. <laughs> we should. <laughs> what should we call it? <laughs> Finally, let's talk about the marketing of the show, because I think it's also been interesting. I, I can't remember if we had this conversation on the show or if maybe it was just a conversation that happened at Dragon Con, but... <laughs> Who can tell anymore? That's how often we talk about <laughs> I know. Black. Is like, did we, did we record an episode about that, or was that just a conversation, conversation we had? Yeah. Of course, but, you know, you spend 12 hours in the car together. <laughs> but when it, came to, when it comes to the marketing of this show, I think it's notable that they've never felt like they needed to excuse the fact that the show's the main 
people on the show are women. Right. And they haven't, it's not just a matter of not excusing it. They haven't sort of made it about that either. Like, right. I don't know if you've seen the commercials for like Rizzoli and Isles, but they have, no. <laughs> it's all like high heels and drinking right. wine and, and being kind of sexy. Right. <laughs> not that it's all that, but that's, it, it plays heavily into their marketing strategy. You know, it's part of the thing. One of their huge sponsors is like Dr. Scholl's for her. I'm not kidding. I believe you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's unimportant in the marketing. Like it's irrelevant, the fact that it's all women. Yeah. Yeah, because they could have gone one way. And it's often the case when you see shows with female leads is they really clearly tried to market the show to women with this high heels and chocolate type of technique. Uh, you know, like the first, I remember the the first season of Grey's Anatomy had that very annoying, at least to me, credit sequence <laughs> with like the juxtaposition of the surgeon tools and like the lipstick, you know? <laughs> I don't love that sequence either. <laughs> no, it was terrible. I was glad they got rid of it. But, you know, they'll either go that route where they will very much market the show to women or they'll go kind of what I'm going to call the frozen route, where they try to hide the fact or downplay the fact that it's about women. And what I'm referring to is is that movie Frozen, the big Disney movie. You might have heard you it. you haven't heard of it. You might have heard of it. There's a little song by that lady with the weird name that John, John Travolta couldn't pronounce. <laughs> Idina Menzel. <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> sure you can. But I had no idea that that film was about two sisters because this ads that I saw for the for the for the movie featured funny snowmen. So I thought it was about funny snowmen and maybe little woodland creatures. Like that was my context of what the movie was about. That's fascinating to me. I mean, I'd been hearing a lot about Frozen before it ever came out before they changed the name to Frozen, which side note, I think it used to be like the Snow Queen or something like that. So again, playing into this thing that you're talking about where they're, they're essentially obfuscating the fact that it's a movie about female characters, primarily. Yeah, so we, we have this, it seems like this uh, this idea, you know, television and movie development, people think that women will go watch movies about men, but men won't go watch movies about women. And I love that Orphan Black didn't even, like, try to take that on. They're just, when we see the marketing for the show, it's pretty much like, this is a really freaking interesting story. Our show is awesome. Come <laughs> watch it. That's the exact phrasing they yeah, use in the ads. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> But no, like that, when I've seen the marketing for the show, that's what it's really about is it is it really highlights the the interesting premise for the story and it just it, it kind of captures the cool atmosphere of the show and and that's really what they're marketing it on. And so a, applause to both the Orphan Black people and like BBC America for not trying to Or Space Channel if or, you're in Canada. Or Space Channel. I actually if you're haven't in seen that much of Space Channel's advertising. That's so why I, I didn't mention it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea how space has been advertising it. We've only been seeing the BBC America side. I think but. I saw something on YouTube and it seemed like it was along the same lines. Along the same BBC lines. America where it's like like here are some characters doing something that you're curious about. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly like selling the show on its intrigue and kind of yeah. that the atmosphere of the show. And it doesn't really give a crap about the fact who is on the screen, like the gender of the people that are that are making up the scenes. And like you were talking about, like it they, they're not sexualized. Right. The not. women in the as like like here are women, here are our main characters, one would assume watching the commercial, because why else would they be the ones featured in the commercial? <laughs> 
but they're just they're just standing there and it's like a headshot and they're speaking directly to the camera and it's like what is going on is mm-hmm. sort of the big selling point it's like what is going on right yeah cuz they could go that way if, if with all female leads as they could have done these really sexy ads and try to draw in the male viewers that way but they didn't it's just like here's our story our story is really interesting and you know what the story is really interesting so, which is why when you said at the top of the show, like, you know, if you if you have a problem with feminism, you shouldn't watch Orphan Black. It's like, actually, I don't know that you necessarily need to even get that they're going through all this <laughs> feminism stuff to enjoy the show, because it's just a I good know. freaking story. I know, you were kidding, but <laughs> but I think it was pertinent. I'm bringing it up now because it's pertinent. Okay. <laughs> so, and the marketing has been really clever. Like, it's, been, it's just been some of the best marketing I've seen done for a TV show. Both, uh, both last season and this season, so far, they've just been really clever and innovative. Yep. I'm, I'm digging it. And actually, come to think of it, talking about my dumbass comment about if you don't like feminism, you shouldn't watch the show. Because, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, there was some comment. There was, there was backlash a little bit when there was talk about Orphan Black and feminism. And... There were comments in the comment section. Never read the comment section, but I always do, and I always hate myself for it. But but there were people who were like, this show's not feminist. You know, stop saying it's feminist. This show's not... Like, people were panicking about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just kind of (laughs) like... It's like, it is, and you liked it, it's okay. Like, calm down. (laughs) That was uh, that was the weird thing. Yeah. It was like people were people were kind of freaking out yeah. and like this show's not feminist. Uh, well, the main characters are all women. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> There's some really strong feminist themes in here, guy. I'm sorry, but there are there you are what's going in and going on in in politics right now cuz it's exactly like the show. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't hate it at all. So that's Orphan Black and Feminism. <laughs> and we will close with a quote from Tatiana Maslany, which I think sort of encapsulates what we've been talking about, I hope. I hope. Kind <laughs> of. She does it better than we do. As, As with is her way. <laughs> so Tatiana Maslany says, That always resonated for me as a woman to have this idea of our bodies not being our own, that they're owned by someone else, that the image of them is owned by someone else. I feel that's a very resonant theme for young women like myself, and especially women in this industry. Thank you, Tatiana Maslany, for saying it so well. (laughs) As always. Why are you so eloquent? (laughs) We received an email about feminism in Orphan Black from Charlotte, who is at ObsessedSestra on Twitter. Charlotte says, I think Orphan Black can be seen as feminist for multiple reasons. It portrays women genetically identical but very different and shows that all women are different and it's okay. They should all embrace their individuality and stop trying to fit the profile of the, quote, typical woman, because it simply doesn't make any sense. It's okay for a woman to be too young and not ready to take care of a child, as in Sarah's case, and it's not shown as awful like in other shows or movies where a woman who isn't ready to be a mother is portrayed as a monster or a weirdo. As if it was a woman's role, and if she couldn't do it, she would just was useless or not normal. Orphan Black can also be seen as a metaphor for the fact that women are often used for the body, they are abused and seen as objects or tools to carry children, for example. 
In that metaphor, dyad would be the patriarchal society or men acting like oppressors. The fact that they're clones highlights the fact that women are seen as all identical, as if they had to be all the same, and Orphan Black proves that it isn't a reality. It shows that women have to take back control over their own body and image. And thanks for sending us that email, Charlotte. And we'd like to thank everybody who's left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Reviews and ratings are greatly appreciated. Uh, they help people find the podcast and, and uh, that sort of thing. And validate our existence. <laughs> no, they help people find a, the podcast. They encourage, <laughs> the, they encourage us. They're very much appreciated. We always like to see that we have a new review. Yes. And I think we've maybe said this before, but I'll go ahead and say it again. The podcast will always be available for free, but it is not free for us to put it on the interwebs. So uh, we would appreciate any support. Doesn't have to be monetary, <laughs> but uh, you can find out how to do that. Different ways to support the podcast. That at TatianaIsEveryone.com slash support. We've got a link to our Zazzle store where we've got doofy things with our logo on mm-hmm. them. And funny, it's funny to us quotes anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any suggestions for things you would like to see on t-shirts or whatever, if there's anything you want, let us know. We can, we can probably make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> and let us know your thoughts on Orphan Black and feminism. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 57. You can also send an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 972 972- 514-7223. You can also use your computer or mobile device to send us a voice message by clicking on the send voicemail tab on the right hand side of our website. We are also on Twitter. There's more. <laughs> we're also on Twitter at TIE Podcast. And we're on Facebook. So many things. So much social media. <laughs> Why is there so much social media? There's a lot. There is a lot. This week. John Dervolta was played by Tatiana Mislani. And I've never liked him more. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>